I'm Air Commodore Frans Ozegra. I'm the chair in war studies at the Military Academy in the Netherlands in Breda. My interest and concern is European security and defense. As part of that, I followed the developments in Eastern Europe. We've seen the crisis in the Crimea and Russian behavior ever since. And this is a concern for the EU, it is a concern for NATO, because all of a sudden we see that interstate warfare is an acute risk again. One of my interests and my background concerns air power and European air power capabilities. One of the problems that we're facing right now in NATO is a certain lack of credibility when it comes to our conventional deterrence posture. One reason of this lack of credibility is this new problem that Russia poses to us in terms of their anti-access and area denial, A2AD capabilities. I'm not suggesting that Russia is interested necessarily in occupying the Baltics of other pieces of real estate in, in Europe. But we are convinced now, if you read the open source analysis, that Russia is intent on suggesting it is still a superpower. And one of the few instruments that Putin has left is the military instrument, hard power. Putin has very deliberately invested in very specific military capabilities that can blunt the current military superiority of Western Europe. Without US support in particular, NATO forces will be struggling to cope with the anti-access and air denial A2AD capabilities, and I'll explain that in a bit more detail. We have become aware that Russia has put a lot of new military capabilities in, for instance, the Kaliningrad area, which is west of the Baltics, but also in the northern part of Europe, next to Scandinavian countries, and also around the Black Sea. Those areas have very specific military capabilities that can deny us access to those areas. And if we can't access those areas, for instance, uh, close to the Baltics, we have a problem in reinforcing existing military units out there that are there to reassure the Baltic states that NATO will take care of their security concerns. Part of the A2AD capabilities, for instance, are service, service missiles, nuclear capabilities, service-to-air missiles, electronic warfare capabilities, and cyber capabilities. And with those capabilities, Russia, if we are to believe open-source, non-classified analysis, can deny us achieving air superiority over parts of Poland and the Baltics. And if NATO doesn't have air superiority, it becomes very hard to send additional troops to the Baltics. We have to be careful not to hype up this risk. On the other hand, uh, we also have to make sure that we send a signal to Putin that any adventurism will be countered with an effective deterrent posture. Currently, that is an open question whether we can actually sustain such a deterrence posture. If we can't achieve air superiority, if we can't reinforce our ground troops, we have a sincere problem because Russia has demonstrated the capability to mass together a force of 60 to 80,000 troops along the Baltic's border within a couple of days during so-called snap exercises. And what the Baltic population is very concerned about is that from such an exercise, Putin might just try and see what he can get away with. This might be hypothetical, but for the Baltic population, this is a very real concern, as it is for the Finnish people, for instance. Because associated with the military threat, Russia has demonstrated it can also launch what we now call so-called hybrid methods. 
It can try to influence the media. It can try to influence the political processes in democratic societies. It can try and has been successful somewhat in eroding the support for institutions such as NATO and or the EU. So from a liberal democratic perspective, what Russia has been trying to do is chipping away at the foundations of democratic societies. Finland and the Baltics in particular, in particular the Baltic states, I believe, have been the primary target states, but also Denmark, for instance, or the German elections, the French elections. We know the Russians have been trying to influence those elections. We've seen in the UK, of course, the poisoning of a former double spy of Russia. So Russia is actively trying to influence what's happening within the sovereign areas of European states. In addition to that, you have this military problem. Now, where does air power come into this? Air power used to be the foundation of military superiority of the West. Ever since Desert Storm in 1991, we've seen a series of very successful military operations in which air power capabilities were pivotal. Our ground forces depend on it. We use air power to coerce, if necessary, rogue states' leaders, for instance, Milosevic or Saddam Hussein or Gaddafi. It offers politicians options to use the military instruments without incurring a lot of political risk. Anytime you deploy ground forces, you accept a lot of political risk, not so with air power. However, what the Russians now do with these A2AD capabilities is really undermining the foundations of the preferred Western mode of warfare. So we have to take care about European air power, because NATO air power relies for a very large extent on US contributions to air power. In particular, the enablers, the suppression of enemy air defense capabilities, electronic warfare capabilities, the early warning capabilities, the stealth capabilities, the long-range standoff munition capabilities. And some states in Europe have some of these particular capabilities, but only the US is able to create a coherent air campaign using those capabilities. We've seen that in Kosovo, that for 80% of some of those capabilities came from the US. Ever since Kosovo, we've known that Europe has been critically dependent on air power capabilities from the US. Until 2014, the Crimea crisis, that dependency on US capabilities was a political embarrassment, but not necessarily a strategic impediment. The Crimea crisis and the assertiveness of Russia transforms this political embarrassment into a very tangible security problem, perhaps even a security risk. Also, the Trump administration has been somewhat critical of NATO and other international institutions. The US also has some concerns about Korea and China and the Pacific in general. So it has to somewhat shift perhaps its military priorities too. This just aggravates this dependency that Europe has in terms of air power capabilities. NATO as an institution and the EU too are taking it very seriously. The EU has even stated that because of that risk on the eastern border of the European continent, along with the problems in the northern edge of Africa, the Mediterranean, the refugee flows and terrorism, the EU is facing an existential threat. After 25 years, the transatlantic area has to be defended again, or at least we should take care of maritime security in that area. Both institutions have launched a whole range of initiatives to counter that threat, or at least to start getting to a solution. Uh, The EU has focused on societal resilience, on counterterrorism, on border security, on refugee flow problems. 
and NATO is trying to solve the capability gap in general, is trying to boost NATO command and control facilities, trying to reinvent how you do Article 5 collective defense operations, how you can transport within a very short amount of time large ground units, divisions, army corps from Western Europe to Eastern Europe, which were routine activities during the Cold War, but we've lost that expertise, so we have to rediscover how you do that. In terms of capability development, EU and NATO have launched again a series of initiatives trying to remedy some of the deficiencies. The problem is that those air power capabilities are very expensive. Yes, European states are slowly increasing their defense expenditures, but we're coming from two and a half decades of defense cuts. And it will take a long time before we can actually see progress again in terms of real improvements of military capabilities. And some of these deficiencies are simply too expensive for any single state. So NATO and the EU are trying to foster international cooperation. But that's a long process. Once you start talking about combat capabilities, nations are somewhat reluctant to do this collectively because this would create new dependencies. Everybody is somewhat sensitive about that. So some of these capabilities will be a long time before we get them. One area of improvement I see occurring in the next decade is the introduction of stealth capabilities. Quite a few European militaries have decided to acquire the F-35, for instance. The F-35 is the replacement of the F-16, and the F-35 is the latest generation, we call it the fifth generation fighter bomber aircraft. It has low observability capabilities. That means that for any radar system, it is very difficult to detect in time before the aircraft can actually launch its weapons. And we need that, in particular, now that we're facing A2, AD capabilities. The F-35, along with the American B-2 bomber and the F-22 stealth fighter, are the only true capabilities that can, on day one, start to degrade the sophisticated surface-to-air missile capabilities that Russia has put in place in the Kaliningrad area, for instance. And if we introduce sufficiently those capabilities, we can, I believe, restore our conventional deterrence posture. Several European countries have decided to acquire the F-35. Norway is one. My country, the Netherlands, will acquire 37, and perhaps in the future more, but that depends on the budgetary realities, of course. Italy has decided to acquire those. Turkey. So what you see is that most nations that operate currently the F-16 have decided or might be inclined to decide to replace that F-16 with the F-35 which was intended for the American Air Force as indeed the replacement of the F-16. So it's a natural replacement option. But it's an expensive one, and there are competitors, of course. The French have their Rafale, the Brits have the Eurofighter. But now the Brits, too, are acquiring and introducing the F-35. The Germans might in the future at some point, and perhaps some other nations that I'm not aware of. Brexit will come into play. First of all, numbers are important here. European fighter strength used to be at about 3,000 aircraft, third and fourth generation aircraft. Currently, I think we are about down to about 1,200. At any moment in time, you can launch about three to 400 of those. The other ones just flew and the other ones are in repair. Those numbers are not really significant. If you want to achieve air superiority and at the same time support your ground troops, you need higher numbers. 
the F-35 and similar stealth capabilities are pretty expensive, so people are expecting that Europe will only acquire a total of six, 700 of those capabilities, which probably isn't sufficient, and they will be needed also to support the non-stealthy aircraft. Now, the UK has always delivered quite a significant proportion to European air power capabilities, and Brexit, in an EU context, may have as a consequence that the Brits might not contribute to future European operations. Having said that, most coalitions are of a NATO nature or of an ad hoc nature. Looking at the tradition of the UK, I think that the UK will remain as one of the lead countries in any significant coalition in the future, be it NATO or an ad hoc coalition. That is in the interest of the UK, but it's also been their forte because they are one of the few countries that can provide leadership along with France. So my hope is and my expectation is that when it comes to NATO or ad hoc coalitions, the UK will still participate and provide a leading role. In the EU, though, that will be a different matter. And the common security and defense policy of the EU will suffer because of this. The recent Franco-German initiatives to start boosting their military cooperation can be seen as a response to Brexit. However, it is a continuation of similar initiatives. It's not the first time that the Germans and the French got together. They've got this French-German core, for instance. And both Germany and France have always tried to boost European military capabilities, either for NATO, but in particular for the EU. Along with the UK, those three countries were the three strong engines of common security defense policy of the EU. So in that respect, it is a continuation, but the importance of it is being accentuated because of the Brexit issue. Now, having said that, I'm somewhat, not pessimistic, but somewhat skeptical whether such initiative will actually lead to significant improvements in the short term. Based on the track record of European capabilities initiatives that we've seen after 1999, they tend to take longer before bearing fruit. The cost tends to increase before they actually deliver the goods. And they tend to focus on low-hanging fruit, for instance, new headquarters or cooperation on developing and producing armored personnel carriers. They're not necessarily focused on the high-priority capability shortfalls because it also involves industrial interests and national sensitivities. So there are all sorts of very good reasons why such initiatives are very important, but also somewhat disappointing in the end. In my country, one of the official advisory boards has actually stated that despite the best efforts also of the Netherlands, because we are very keen to foster international cooperation in military affairs and defense spending. Despite those efforts and ambitions, we have to be realistic that so far most initiatives have not delivered on their promises. Yet we will keep on supporting those. My final thoughts on this. My concern is that four years after the Crimea crisis, the sense of urgency that that crisis inspired seems to evaporate somewhat. It isn't the most pressing political priority anymore. Which is understandable. There are other political priorities, domestically, of course, in most European states. There is the refugee flow problem. There is the rise of the extreme right. There is populism uh, at play. But still, from a security political perspective, the problems that 2014 presented us with haven't gone away. 
I just looked at my own country. I'm about to publish a paper on defense policy in the Netherlands. The budgetary realities are such that it will be another four to six years before we see real significant capability improvements in my country and some other countries as well. That means that by 2024, a decade after the Crimea crisis, we will see some improvements, but that's a decade down the road. And I think that's a reason for concern.